She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files podcast. Season 2. Episode 12. Aubrey. So this episode is called Aubrey. So we can assume it's about a woman named Aubrey. Of course. Absolutely. Makes sense to me. Anyway. So in this episode, a police officer has a vision that helps her find the remains of an FBI agent who vanished in the 1940s while working on a series of murders. Mulder and Scully arrive to figure out what happened to the agent and his partner all those years ago. But Mulder is interested in how this cop managed to locate the body. He believes she's tapping into some kind of psychic ability. And worse, it seems like that series of murders they were investigating in the 40s has started again. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this police officer is named Aubrey. Probably, oh, of course. Yeah. Gotta be, right? Yeah. Although that's not the only thing that Mulder is interested in. He's true. In, he is interested in her name. So, yeah, yeah. which is not Aubrey. <laughs> Spoiler. This episode was written by Sarah B. Charno and directed by Rob Bowman. It was filmed in Vancouver and Surrey, British Columbia. Its original air date was Friday, January 6, 1995, which means this is the first episode that aired in 1995. Yes. And during the winter break, Fox aired reruns of Little Green Men on Friday, December 23rd, and The Host on Friday, December 30th. So on Christmas Eve Eve and New Year's Eve Eve. Yep. This episode had a viewership of 16.2 million in the United States, so up 2 million from last time, and this is now the most watched episode of any X-Files episode so far, just beating out Little Green Man and Red Museum, which both had 16.1 million, so just scraping by. Nice. But, yeah. So, we are at police headquarters in Aubrey, Missouri. Oh, oh, that's Aubrey. It's a town. Okay. It's a town. And I actually didn't check to see if it was real or not, which is something I usually do. But oh, yeah. I just got I'm so gonna... distracted by the name. I, guess. I know. I'm going to guess know. it's not a real town, but maybe we'll find out. I'll we'll look it up out. later. Yeah. We see two men walking through a police station. And well, we see the we'll get into this. We see the legs of two men walking through a police station. And one is saying there was blood everywhere. Whoever killed her was a real psychopath. And then he also mentions that seven stores in town carry straight razors. And then the other man who will find out the Lieutenant Brian Tillman tells him to check it out as he picks up a phone. So he's picking up a phone. He's like, Hey, make sure you check that out. And also he asks about the press and he's told not to mention any of this to anyone, especially not about the sister. And then as the officer walks away, we see there's a woman sitting at the desk staring at Tillman. And then he hangs up the phone that he was on and then walks away. And she continues watching him as he goes away. And we'll learn that she is Detective B.J. Morrow. So in his office, Tillman is sitting at his desk. He's hunched over a computer and he's drinking coffee. And there's a picture of him and his wife on the desk. And Morrow comes into his office and he's like, I'm busy working on this homicide. But then he's like, oh, cool, come on in. So she shuts the door and says, he didn't show last night. And he's kind of like, this is what you want to talk about? And she's like, well, I made dinner. So, and then the phone rings and it's the coroner. And Tillman is listening to the phone and BJ is just kind of sitting there. And she's looking kind of 
worried and kind of sad. And then she grabs some paper and she writes the words, I'm pregnant on the piece of paper and then sets it down in front of him. And then he puts the corner on hold and he like, you know, says here, he writes an address and stuff and hands it to her. He's like, this will be a place where we can meet tonight at 10 o'clock. And she's like, a motel. And he's like, it's a place where we can talk quietly. And so in case you haven't figured it out, BJ is not his wife. Nope. So <laughs> later at the Motel Black, BJ arrives and it's pretty run down and there's probably vermin there. It's not a nice looking place. Anyway, she's trying to unlock a room with the key, but like her vision starts to get blurry and like she can't get the key in the doorknob. And then she starts like hearing like whispers and stuff. And she's like, oh, and she's like, sits down and then like these headlights boom pop up and we see like the vehicle that the headlights are from and it's like from like old timey pickup truck and then we see what we're assuming is like a flashback or a dream or a vision or something because it's kind of filmed that way and it's like a young man driving a truck through a field and then he parks and he's got something big and body shaped in the back and he grabs it and it's got blood on it and he throws that thing down on the ground and we see that the body is wearing a badge. And then the young man starts digging a grave and then throws the body in. And then we cut to the present and BJ Morrow is like digging through the dirt frantically, right? Digging, digging. And it's kind of actually it's intercut with scenes of like the shovel hitting the dirt. So like we see her hands digging through the dirt. And then we see like the old timey like shovel going through the dirt. And then the music's all ramping up, ramping up. And then she uncovers bones. And then there's this metal badge and she picks it up and we read it. And we realize that back in the day, they had cool metal badges when you were in the FBI. Mm-hmm. And then we get the theme song. Ooh. Yep. <laughs> so Tillman is played by Terry O'Quinn, who you probably know from lots of things. He will actually come back in the first X-Files movie in a different role. And then I guess he also has a role in season nine in the episode, Trust No One. Yeah. And people might recognize him as the actor who played John Locke in Lost, which is where a lot of people think my cat Locke got his name because I adopted Locke kind of when Lost was ending. And so everyone's like, oh, like the guy from Lost. And I'd be like, no, my cat Locke is actually named after the con artist Locke Lamora from Scott Lynch's Gentleman Bastard series. It's a series of books. The first one is The Lies of Locke Lamora. It's really, really good. I highly recommend it. But that is where my cat was got his I name. I mean, I would have assumed maybe Locke was named after John Locke the philosopher which is what john locke in lost is named after right aren't all the characters in lost named after like philosophers i believe uh maybe i I don't know i think so so i haven't (laughs) haven't seen Lost. but most people thought it was from lost when he was a kitten and okay it's from the lives of locke lamora which is a really good book if you like fantasy i recommend it it's kind of heartbreaking but it's awesome okay well man spoiler it's It's not a spoiler it's just you know it's a con artist it doesn't say the heartbreaking saga of <laughs> it's like it's it's a it's like a heist book okay. from like it's kind of like Ocean's Eleven. See, I wouldn't think that would be heartbreaking, honestly. But okay, all right. Well, you know, you con artists don't always win. Okay, yeah. He's also so Terry O'Quinn. He's also the titular character of Stepfather and Stepfather Two. Before mm-hmm. Lost was like a twinkle in J.J. Abrams' eye, but also interestingly enough for us, he played FBI assistant director. Kendall in Alias, which is where he actually met J.J. Abrams before Lost. 
And then he had a seven episode run on West Wing, probably with X-Files season two alumni, Bradley Whitford. And then he's going to be in 41 episodes of Millennium, Chris Carter and Morgan O'Wong kind of show. And then, but what I recognize him from is the Rocketeer because he played Howard Hughes. And that's probably one reason why I thought the teaser was really confusing because both he and BJ Murrow, they kind of have like an old timey face to me. And so it felt kind of old timey. And then with the flashback. And so I was really confused. And plus like, it's a little, it's a little small town police department. So it automatically looks kind of like in the past. And so it was really kind of confusing to me that it's actually supposed to be taking place in real life. So, and then as I mentioned in the beginning, that we see the officer's legs. So in the beginning, they do this weird thing where it's like a handheld camera, but it's supposed to be like dog's eye view for some reason. I don't know why they did it that way. It was really disoriented because like you're following around and it's just like swimming around. I think it's supposed to give the feeling that like you're overhearing this conversation that maybe Yeah, but I wouldn't be overhearing it looking at their shoes. Yeah, no, I don't get it either because like... I mean, and they do show a police dog, but like... They yeah, just show a police know. dog like tearing up his bed as they walk into the room, but like it's not like they had a dog, and so we're seeing like the dog for some reason. Yeah. Well, if we but, ever get to interview Rob Bowman, we'll put that on our list. Yeah. But speaking of dogs and cats living together, Terry O'Quinn has been making videos on Cameo since 2017, oh, and cool. he donates all the proceeds to the Virginia Beach SPCA, which I also have a personal and financial relationship with, which is kind of weird so sometimes things are weird yeah they did do a really good job with the music though at the end when like she's like having all the flashbacks and digging through like it's super like it really gives you that frantic heart pounding feeling yeah that was really good it really it really pumped up the the scene but it's like she did disturb the hell out of that crime scene though right well to be fair she didn't know it was a crime scene until she no but but once she found bone she's like picking them up and looking at them so yeah the greatest thing but yeah yeah so then we're at fbi headquarters in washington dc and Mulder is looking at the x-rays of a skull and particularly the teeth and scully's like any cavities and Mulder's like no i brush after every meal and he asks if she thinks that the x-rays on the light board match because he's like trying to compare them. And so Scully examines them and she decides that they probably do. And They're really asks, easy to match. I'm sorry. Yeah. They have cavities and there's missing teeth. You can easily match them. It's not hard. Right. So, but she does get to throw around fancy words for teeth. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Science. Science. Um, so she asks who the x-rays belong to. And Mulder says that it's special agent Sam Cheney. Cheney was a legend. 40 years ago, before the FBI started profiling violent offenders, Cheney and his partner, Tim Ledbetter, investigated what was then called stranger killings and are now known as serial murders. And they disappeared while investigating a series of three murders in Aubrey, Missouri. Cheney's body was only just found two days ago by a detective named B.J. Morrow. Yeah, which he does specify as a woman, just in case we didn't know that. So. He's like, <laughs> well, BJ Murrow, didn't know. a woman. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. Like, he had to specify that it was a woman. Like, it's a cop. She's a detective. It doesn't matter. Right. And because I'm a nerd, just like, I just love how they kind of point out, like, people don't realize that serial killer is actually a really new term because we've grown up, like, in the 80s and 90s, like, hearing about serial killers. But 
It's pretty new. So yes, FBI Special Agent Rob Ressler actually used the term serial homicides in a talk he gave in 1974, which a lot of people credit as the origin of the term. Mm -hmm. But the term serial murderer and serial murderer actually appear in John Broffrey's book, The Meaning of Murder, in 1966. And there are records of it being used before that. Mm -hmm. But serial killer didn't really become popularized in American media until 1981, in part due to coverage of the Atlanta child murders. Yeah. Which basically your average American in 1975 would not have heard the term serial killer. And like, if you watch contemporaneous news coverage of like Ted Bundy, you'll notice they don't usually say serial killer. And then when we start to get to the Green River killer, kind of right after, that's when the word serial killer starts creeping in a little more. So it's just kind mm -hmm. of fascinating from. Yeah, I recently, coincidentally, I had just heard actually a podcast from September of 2020 the CBC podcast ideas and they're talking with Peter Vronsky and he was talking about how like I guess the previous official terms they used to use were like stranger on stranger murder or recreational killing some of these make sense some of these I think I actually have heard before some right. of them are kind of funny but some of them I had heard and they kind of make sense but so we had recreational killing pattern murder thrill killing multicide which <laughs> I think is hilarious I think multicide yeah. is hilarious psycho murder sequential homicide compulsive murder multiple murder motiveless killing lust murder spree killing and then strangely they also use the term mass murder mm -hmm. which we usually think of as that you kill lots of people at once but they actually use that for serial killers as well vronsky actually unknowingly met two serial killers before they were caught and didn't know they were serial killers at the time when he met them, which is in part why he started researching serial killers. Oh, cool. And he also believes that werewolf killings were actually pre-modern cases of serial killers. Huh. And then werewolf killings also are the subject of possibly the first English language use of the word in 1951. It had been used previously in German in 1930, and I'm not going to try and say the German version of it, but it was the German translation was basically serial killer, though it may have actually been used in England in 1888, referring to surprise, surprise, the Jack the Ripper killings mm -hmm. in the London Daily Post. But according to Vronsky, the headlines can't be verified as authentic. So they have like images of the paper but no one can prove that they're not doctored. Yeah, so. that's, I mean, no, we need to stop talking about this because we're on a big tangent now, but that's yeah. the thing with Jack the Ripper. Like it's never going to be solved because half the evidence can't even be like authenticated. So who even yeah. knows anyway? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but it was the coverage of Wayne Williams after he was arrested in May of 81. Mm -hmm. That really is when in like serial killer became like popular in the media. People started saying it. And then like you said, Robert Ressler is kind of, given credit for actually making the term stick. Yes. Um, and if you're a fan of Manhunter, Bill Tench is based on Robert Ressler, even though they do fictionalize a lot of that stuff. Yeah, Mindhunter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other guy who's played by um, Jonathan Groff, he's based on... Sorry, I'm blanking. Yeah, he's, uh, isn't it John something? He's, yeah. he's the guy who actually wrote the, the book called Mindhunter. And the yeah, he's the right author now. of Mindhunter. Yeah. And the guy who plays Ed Camper, Cameron Britton, is like so good and freaky, and I love it. Again, we're, we're on camera. John right? Douglas. That's, that's fine. John yeah. Douglas. Yeah, John Thank Douglas. Yeah. Oh, God. That's going to yeah. drive me crazy. Because he's the one, like, he wrote the book, basically, that started yeah. the whole, like, behavioral unit kind of yes. stuff and everything. And then he wrote a book called Mindhunter. 
in the mind of a killer i think or something yeah, like that he's written a couple different is. books yeah. so that's just but cool. he's the main dude I don't know. I mentioned Cameron Britton being a really good Ed Kemper and how frightening he is, and he's really good. He seems like a nice guy, not Ed Kemper, Cameron Britton. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. we're on such a long tangent. We're so we far from the plot. We've like <laughs> forgot what we were saying. But anyway, so apparently werewolves are my gateway drug to serial killers. I mean, not really, because they're kind of more like, you know, I was interested in both. But yeah. Also, I just learned yesterday that James Baldwin wrote a book-length essay on the Atlanta child murders in 1985. It's called The Evidence of Things Not Seen. Huh. I'd have so to read I'm, that. I might have to check that out. Yeah. It's like 144 pages altogether, including like the foreword and stuff like that. So Yeah. There was a good podcast about the Atlanta murders, but then I heard some stuff about like, I don't know. It's like so many podcasts where like, they yeah, have such a great story. Monster. Is that the one? Yeah. And they have such a good story, but then other people online are like, well, they left out this, this, and this. Well, and they they have to leave this, out so, stuff. I mean, you can't Yeah, do and that's the thing is they're telling a story. And so then yeah. you have to, if you're interested in the real stuff, you're like, okay, you have to go to Reddit now and like read. Oh, yeah, because Reddit <laughs> all is where evidence. all the real stuff happens, right? Yeah. Okay. Dude. Yeah. It's at least where you can get links to a lot of interesting stuff and hear people's theories. And I love, I love reading people's theories. So anyway. Yes. Okay. Now, <laughs> sorry, that was our separate podcast About, called True Crime. Yeah. Serial killers. As it relates to the X Files, I want to serial kill. That's our new podcast. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> okay. Yeah. So Scully asks Mulder what his interest in this case is, and he says that in their day, Cheney and Ledbetter's methods of profiling killers was seen as a little kooky, sort of how believing in the paranormal is seen right now. Yeah. So he kind of kind of relates to them, I guess. And then there's another mystery. He wants to know why this police detective suddenly drove her car into this expansive field and managed to dig up the bones of this man who's been missing for 50 years. Plus, Mulder has always been intrigued by women named BJ. Yep. Which uh, jokes that definitely went over my head when I was a kid for a thousand, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to bring her name up immediately, but I was going to like take the high ground. But so thanks, Mulder, for yeah. doing the job that needs to be done. So. <laughs> and also like scully like turns your head and she's like oh like just, <laughs> when he says that because he like just casually says it and walks away and i'm again like hostile work environment <laughs> totally right Mulder's really lucky got the calendars he leaves porn in the vcr like like just man okay no he's yeah. extremely lucky that scully like <laughs> finds him charming because yeah if she didn't Ooh, there would be yeah. like a workplace dispute Yep. So they're at the crime scene in Aubrey, Missouri, and they've got a filled and they've got like little, I guess they're like checking the rest of the area to see if there's other bodies there also, because they've got like multiple little areas like staked off and people are digging. Probably not just other bodies, just to make sure they get all the bones and all the evidence that might be associated with it. Yeah. Well, because we'll find out the other agent that's yes. working on it is still missing. Too, yeah. So they might have been looking to see if he was in a different grade. Yeah, but they do like, that for they, scenes like that anyway, because they want to make sure they get all the evidence. So and all the bones, because they may have disarticulated as they decomposed but anyway yeah yep so they're excavating and again they have like wooden markers and strings to set off all the different areas and someone's taking photos and other people are sifting through the dirt and scully and Mulder are talking to bj morrow and scully asks her how she found the remains and morrow says she saw a dog digging in the ground and then she went over to see what was going on and she found the gravesite. 
And so then Mulder points out that in her initial police report, she said she couldn't explain how she found the body. And Morrow counters that it was late and she was in shock from discovery. So that's why her report is kind of, you know, not complete. So then Mulder starts to ask, like, where she parked her car because she had originally said that she was having engine trouble and that's when she saw the dog. So she points to a spot and he's like, wow, that's really far away to see a dog way over here digging. Right. And so Tillman overhears Mulder kind of like giving his girlfriend a rough time. And so he goes over and starts to defend her saying that he seemed to be more interested in how the body was found than how it got there in the first place. And Tillman jokes, sort of that they don't suspect Moro, right? And Mulder says no, but he does want to ask her a few more questions. And then he asks her if she's ever had any clairvoyant experiences, visions, prophetic dreams, anything like that. And Tillman kind of laughs as one would, but then Moro is like really like she seems like whoa, she's caught off guard and kind of like, whoa, what do you ask? Why? And then Tillman is like, you know, we have a lot to do. And if you have any further questions about the crime, feel free to call us. And then he like, let's go. And so he gets Morrow and they walk away. Yeah. So then we're at the coroner's office in examining room C and Scully is studying a bone with a magnifying glass. And she says that the bones are in good condition, but she thinks the field was tilled shortly after his burial because there's these weird cuts on his ribs. And Mulder, meanwhile, weird. I don't know about that theory, but okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's just seeing cuts and like, Hey, So Mulder, meanwhile, is going through some of Cheney's old journals and files. And Cheney wrote about killers being akin to monsters. And Scully asked what he said about his like last werewolves. <laughs> Sorry, I keep interrupting you. That's okay. And Mulder says the press dubbed the killer the slash killer. His three victims were all young women, aged 25 to 30. And he would disable them with a blow to the head. And then he would carve the word sister on their chest and paint it on the wall with their blood. And apparently his victims all died by bleeding to death. So he'd basically like hit them over the head, cut them somewhere to like use their blood to write sister and then leave them to bleed out. So I guess they would bleed out. They were unconscious and then they would just bleed yeah. out unconscious. And so, okay. yeah. And the killer was never found. And so as Mulder talks, Scully kind of looks surprised and she touches Cheney's skull, which has a big fracture in it. So obviously like he was beat over the head too, probably. And she says the cuts on the ribs could have been made with a razor. And so Mulder asks if she can make out a word that might have been carved in the chest. And she says, no, not without a digital scanner. Yeah. The skull fracture is hilarious looking. I have to say, like the, the fracture on the skull. It's like, it's almost like it's painted on. Like it's got like a big, like you would draw like an, a cartoon impact mark. Mm-hmm. It's got like all the lines going out. It, I thought it was pretty funny because the skull wouldn't do that. It would crumble and break apart but that was pretty but i do give them credit for remembering the missing tooth on the skull Mm -hmm. it is missing a tooth in the right spot so good job guys good job so then we see that scully is at a computer so apparently she found a scanner because she has scanned the bones and uploaded the images to quantico and so it's going to take a little bit so we see like a little clock on the screen because it's uploading and transferring the data and they're eating kentucky fried chicken (laughs) <laughs> and they're waiting for the FBI to send back the images. Yeah. Having some food. So they actually are eating this episode, which I'm impressed with. Because like we talked about in Red Museum, they weren't, they were, they were fake eating in Red Museum. But in this one, they actually, they, you see them munching down and they're chewing for real. So cool. But they're waiting for the images to be rendered. And Mulder thinks that Murrow lied about having car trouble. 
it turns out that her car had just been tuned a few days ago. So he, I guess, checked all that stuff out. And Scully says, I don't think she was out there due to car issues. The Motel Black would have been the perfect meeting place away from town and his wife. And Mulder's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And Scully's like, it's obvious that Murrow and Tilmer are having an affair. Can't you see that? And he's like, <laughs> Mulder does not. No. That's what happens we know that when Mulder all is... your relationships are based on porn, Mulder, your model relationship. Yeah, Mulder is, well, we know that Mulder is kind of clueless <laughs> on something. He is, yeah. So, so I thought yeah. that was actually really funny that Scully had picked up on that and Mulder had, like, no idea. He was totally clueless. Yeah, yeah. and I get there in a small town, but really KFC is, like, the worst fried chicken <laughs> ever. Like, I ate buckets and bucket of it when I was a kid and a young adult, but that's because I just didn't know any better. It's not good fried chicken. Yeah. So it's really wet. I haven't had it great. in, like, literal decades. So I did eat it as a kid because, you know, obviously we'd beg my mom to get it and she was mm -hmm. not a huge fan but sometimes she would like give in and we would get some but like haven't had it in like 20 years so i don't even remember yeah well it would just maybe it didn't, maybe it isn't supposed to be wet but like because they put it in the bucket and then put the lid on it it just it steams and so it's yeah, all sweat soggy yeah yeah although i did man chicken little they had chicken little sandwiches i would eat a ton of those in high school because you could get them for a buck <laughs> and so you could go and buy like three or four and just like bom, bom, bom. anyway <laughs> so yeah So then Scully's computer beeps and images pop up. Yay. Yeah. And on the left is a scan of one of the slash killer's victim skeletons. And on the right is Cheney's skeleton. So the victim was female. So obviously her skeleton is a little smaller. So Scully enlarges it to make it the same size as Cheney's. And then she has the computer compare them. And there's some enhancing CSI magic. And then Morrow comes mm. in and she wants to know if they've made any progress on the case. And Mulder says they think Cheney may have been the victim of the killer he was trying to catch. And then Morrow, as she's standing there, kind of has a vision of someone beating Cheney in the head with a lead pipe. And so she kind of zones out and then she tries to shake it off and she apologizes and she's like, I'm not feeling well. And she like excuses herself. Yeah. So I was wondering how they got the scan of the first body because like I do know because I have read kathy reich's entire temperance brennan series which means i'm practically a forensic anthropologist and i know that <laughs> that's how that works that's how that works and i know that they keep bones of crime victims in boxes for long periods like they do have like storage for that and if no especially if like no one's going to claim the body if there's no family to release the bones to that kind of thing or they'll keep them as evidence but 50 years seems like a really long time just logistically to hold on to something like that and particularly because presumably these women had families so they would have eventually released the body back to them right because by the first body you mean the first victim right right we know obviously they have they have cheney's body because they just dug it up right i mean so. the body that they're comparing cheney's body to. right yes yeah so then we see so bj's in the bathroom and she's splashing water on her face in the bathroom and scully comes in and asks if she's feeling better and offers her a paper towel and she says she's fine now and like reaches past Scully's paper towel and pulls her own out of the machine. So not really going for that business right now. And Scully goes right for the money. And she's like, inner office relationships can be complicated, especially when the other person is married. And then she also admits that she knows Murrow is pregnant. So they have a little you know, girl on girl conversation. And then Scully starts to leave and Morrow is like, does it show? And Scully says, not yet. 
And then Moro jokes that she knows why her mother only had one kid. She had been told about the nausea, but not about the nightmares. And Scully's like, nightmares? And so she walks back in the bathroom. And Moro says, it's always the same. She's in a house and it feels familiar. And there's a woman who's been hurt. And there's a mirror. And she sees a man's reflection in the mirror. She recognizes the face, but doesn't know him. And there's lots of blood. And Scully asks, have you, have you talked to anybody about these nightmares? And Morrow says she can't. She's sure it's linked to the pregnancy, and Brian would kill her if she told anyone. So Scully asks, well, what are you going to do? And she's like, I don't know. So total normal pregnancy dreams, right? Like blood and murder. That's like, everyone who gets pregnant totally has those dreams. <laughs> nothing, to, nothing to worry about whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I've so, never yeah. been pregnant, but I have never heard that being a thing either. I mean, I've heard people yeah. who've... I have had friends who've been pregnant talk about having really vivid dreams sometimes, but not like horrific nightmares. So, yeah. Yeah. And also casually saying that Selman would kill her if she told anybody about being pregnant, like kind of feels super ominous in the context <laughs> of this episode. Yeah, a little bit. So, Although yeah. I think she just means it in that way that we all say like, oh, I would. I know. But, you know, friend, if he did this, but we're yeah. watching the episode <laughs> and being like, what? He would kill her. So, yeah. So Scully goes back into the examining room and she tells Mulder that Morrow is pregnant until Min is the father. And then Morrow comes in and Mulder has approximated the patterns of the cuts on Cheney's bones. And now he's trying to match them up with letters. So he basically goes through options based on probability of like what letters they could be. And he and Scully are kind of discussing how like, oh, this letter could be this letter or like mm -hmm. this could be a word. This could be a random slash. And Mulder suggests that they should maybe exhume one of the victims, like the original victim, so they could study the bones and compare them to Cheney's bones. And meanwhile, Mara walks over to Cheney's bones, which are on the table, and she just like runs her finger over his chest like she's writing, and she says, brother. And Mulder and Scully look over, and Mara says that on the rib cage, the letters spell brother. And Mulder types it into the computer to see how that matches. And the screen shows that brother is a 66% match. Yeah. So like he did say that like the last two letters were like ER previously. And then like, it's a dude skeleton. He writes sister on female skeletons. So why would they not automatically think of the word brother? I don't know. Like, have you never played hangman? Like, come on guys. Yeah. But and Weird. also, apparently, if they have to exhume the bodies to study the bones of the original victims, they don't have the bones. So then where did they get the scan of the skeleton from 50 years ago? Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Well, we're going to find out shortly that I don't think the FBI had the stuff at all because we're going to see that they got the photos just from the file. Mm -hmm. And the file is actually from the Aubrey, the police department. Yeah. So yeah. So I don't not, know. It's not FBI stuff at all. So they must've just scanned the photos that the Aubrey police department had. I guess so. Yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and let that go. Yeah. Well, they just enhanced them. It was fine. It's fine. It's, it's TV science. You scan them and you enhance them. It works. <laughs> like they, I'm surprised they don't have like molecular data on them from scanning them. So, yeah. So Tillman comes in and they're all huddled on the computer because now they know that it says brother. So and then he sees the crime scene photos on the desk and he asks Mora what she's doing. And he picks up the folder. and He's all mad. He's like, the crime scene files are supposed to be sealed. No one is supposed to have access to these. And Mora's like, um, I think these photos are like from a crime that happened in 1942. And Tillman's like, no, this is the murder that happened three days ago. And Scully's like, no, they're the case of Cheney and Ledbetter that we were looking into when they disappeared. And Tillman grabs the file and he looks at it. And on the front, it says Aubrey's Police Department. And he sees indeed that it is dated 1942. 
So it lists the names of the three victims on the front as well. And so then he's like, well, three days ago, a young woman was murdered and the word sister was carved on her chest and painted on the wall. And only Tillman and the coroner and one of his officers knew about this. And then as he says that, an officer comes into the room and says, there's been a call. They got another one. And it's like, dude, what a like, good job like blowing the seal on your sealed file. Like you're in law enforcement. You don't know at least the stories about what happened in your own town 50 years ago. It's like your own file. It's your own police department file. And you didn't know that it existed. Like, yeah. So Mulder and Scully arrive with Tillman and Morrow at the crime scene. And the crime scene's like a community pool and the pool's been drained. And so they have to like climb down into the pool with a ladder and down inside it, the word sister is written in blood. And we see like a guy dusting the writing with for fingerprints. And an officer tells Tillman that the victim's name was Roberta Johnson. And Tillman pulls the cover off the body and there's blood all around her head. And Morrow looks shaky and disturbed. So Scully like steadies her and Morrow's like, it's her. It's the woman from my dream. And like everyone looks at her. Yeah. Like internal monologue, BJ, like internal monologue. <laughs> like, like, Oh, that's the woman that I dreamed I killed or, or someone killed. So yeah, not the best uh, thing to say out loud. <laughs> uh, police investigation. So then we're at Lincoln park in Aubrey, Missouri. And we see this little girl and she's playing with a dog and she trips and falls. And then like Morrow's like, oh, like she gets up when the girl falls. But then like the mother comes over and helps her. And Morrow's like, oh, like I've really been getting that mothering instinct a lot lately. And then she tells him like her mother used to apparently like was a helicopter parent and she hated it and never wanted to be like her. But she's like her father was a good cop. And that's all she ever wanted to be. And he would think they were wasting their time, though, because you can't solve a case from a dream. So they're going to be talking about her dream because obviously she just told everybody about it earlier. And so Mulder tells her that he often feels that dreams are answers to questions we haven't figured out how to ask. Okay, Mulder. So he asked her to go over the dream again. And she's like, there's a woman who's been hurt and she can see a man reflected in the mirror. And he has like a rash on his face, but his eyes are tense. And there's a strange picture on the wall behind them. It's of a building like the Washington Monument, but different. And then next to it, there's like some circular thing. And Mulder's like, well, can you draw it? So they give her like a notebook and some pencil. And she sketches. She basically just draws like a really tall triangle and a circle. And Mulder's like, oh, that could be the Trilon and Parisphere from New York. They were symbols of the 1939 World's Fair. So Mulder just knows that, I guess. And Morrow's like, I've never been to New York City and I don't know what those things are or why they would appear in my dream. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised they didn't go with dream footage here. I'm not saying they should have. I'm just surprised they didn't. Yeah. Because so, it's just, we just see her talking and then we cut like to Mulder and Scully and her talking and then she draws the picture. So I was kind of surprised they didn't go like with little flashback stuff, but. Yeah, well, they're doing a lot of that. Maybe they didn't want to do more. Or maybe they didn't have the budget. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I, like I said, I don't think they should have, but I'm surprised right. they didn't. So, because they tend to like to overdo. So, <laughs> so back at the police station, Morrow's going through a book of headshots from 1942. And as she's flipping through it, Tillman approaches and he's like, oh, you're working late. And he tells her that he's willing to go to the appointment with her. And now she's like, well, actually, I'm not so sure that's what I want to do. So obviously they're talking about an abortion. Mm-hmm. 
And he's like, well, I thought we agreed this is the best thing for both of us. And she's like, nope, I changed my mind. And he's like, well, it's our decision, not just yours. And so she doesn't answer. And one of the mugshots actually catches her attention. She's like, it's him. And then she like, he's like, I have to go. And so she leaves. Yeah. And actually it is her decision. Sorry, yeah. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what. I'm sorry. Her body. So. Sorry. She gets the final say. Yep. I know that. Yep. Yep. Sucks yep. for dudes, but that's how it goes, guys. That's yeah. No, it, it, it does. I mean, uh, maybe I'm TMI in here, but I mean, I had a similar situation when I was young and I found out afterwards and like it sucked, but like it not my decision. So. Nope. Yeah. So then we are at Highway 377, apparently on the Missouri-Nebraska border, because it just says Missouri slash Nebraska. So Mulder and Scully are driving down the highway, and in the passenger seat, Scully says the man BJ claims to have seen in the dream was Harry Coakley. So they tracked the mugshot down. That's who that was. He's been living in Gainesville, Nebraska, since his release from penitentiary on December 5th, 1993. So about a year. He's been out of jail about a year. He had been convicted of rape and the attempted murder of a woman named Linda Thibodeau in 1945. So he actually got a pretty good sentence. He almost got like a 50-year sentence. Mm -hmm. So impressive, Nebraska. Good job. He had carved sister on her chest, but she was able to escape. And apparently the police never made the connection to the 1942 homicides because police. So Mulder says he doesn't want to be rash, but he's probably the prime suspect in these murders. And Scully's like, he's 77. And Mulder's like, that doesn't rule him out. So, of course, it doesn't explain Morrow's dream or finding the body. And then Scully says, well, it could be cryptomnesia. And that is apparently when you remember things that you saw previously, but don't didn't remember. So it's not like recovered memories, just like something happened and you remember it. So because Moro's father was a cop. And so maybe when she was a kid, she had seen photos of the crime scene at some point and heard him talking about the case as a kid and forgot. Although that wouldn't have been in the 40s. But anyway, so Mulder points out that doesn't explain how she found the body, though. And then Scully's like, well, maybe the recent murders uncovered some previous information and she subconsciously connected the dots and maybe it jarred a hunch. And Mulder kind of scoffs at that. And she's like, well, you've had some pretty extreme hunches yourself. And then he's kind of like, what? Never. <laughs> and they kind of laugh. Yeah. Yeah. I, thought it, I thought that was a cute exchange. I thought it was cute. Yeah. I, anyway, I actually, to be honest with you, except for the very end when like he kind of like chuckles and then they smile at each other and kind of yeah. do that. I actually thought, I actually thought the rest of it was kind of boring. It just, it felt like scripted dialogue. It didn't feel like they were actually having a conversation, which is a thing that can happen, I guess. But yeah, the end was good, but the rest of yeah. it was kind of like, oh, you're just talking. It's not really anyway. Well, that's the exchange that I thought was cute was the yeah. like little last. Okay. Bit. The last little bit. Okay. Yeah. No, that part was good. That part seemed real. That seemed yeah, like it was cute. two people like in the moment realizing these mm -hmm. are how characters would interact. And he just kind of like chuckles and be like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. No, the of, rest of the conversation yeah. was exposition. So that's why yeah. it didn't no, feel it felt organic. really boring. So, but yeah. you have to hear it because <laughs> otherwise we don't know what's going on. Yeah. So at Coakley's house, they knock on the door. Coakley answers. He has wild hair and he has a cannula in his nose attached to an oxygen tank. And he lets them in and he sits in the living room and he lights a cigarette, which doesn't seem like a great idea with an oxygen tank. Anyway, not, does he not... still have the thing in his nose when he lights the cigarette or he has taken it out? I forget. I, I think it's still in there. I don't think he takes okay, it yeah, out. Okay, yeah, that's definitely not a good idea. Yeah. Okay. 
And Scully says the records show that in 1942, he lived in Terrence, Nebraska, which is an hour from Aubrey, Missouri. And that is where three women were murdered and mutilated in the same way as Linda Thibodeau. And Coakley says he doesn't remember much about that. Doctors say he was sick back then. They gave him some pills. He served his time. Now he's better. And Scully asks what kind of pills. And he says red ones and white ones. And he calls Scully little sister. And Mulder shows him a photo of Cheney and he asks if Coakley recognizes him. And he does not. And Mulder's like, well, where were you two nights ago? And Coakley says, I was right here in this chair. Can't go anywhere without this oxygen tank. And then he starts to rattle off the exact shows he was watching to like prove he was there watching TV. Mm-hmm. And Scully's like, that's not necessary. And Mulder has already like started to leave. And Coakley's like, are you finished with me, little sister? And she's like, yeah, I guess so. And so then they leave. Yeah. So then we cut to Morrow's house and she is asleep in bed. And like the wind is blowing through her windows and her curtains are like, and the shutters are banging. Nice nighttime scene. And there's whispers in the air. And in her dream, she sees those headlights again. And then she sees like a razor slashing down and she wakes up and she grabs her gun and she's pointing in the dark. So it like scared her enough to think that someone might be in her room. Right. But nothing's there. But then she starts to wipe her head. And she's like, there's something on her hand. So she turns on the light and see there's blood smeared on her lamp and like she's covered in blood. So she runs into the bathroom to clean off the blood. And as she does that, she realizes the word sister is carved into her chest. So she runs out of the bathroom into the bedroom where on the back of the door, there's a full length mirror and she's looking at it. And behind her, she sees young Harry Coakley in the mirror. So she like screams because she thinks he's in the room. So she spins around and he's obviously no one's there. So then she like falls to the ground and starts crying. Mm-hmm. And then she has a vision of Coakley prying up floorboards and dragging a body through a basement. So, mm-hmm. so then we cut to Moro is pulling up floorboards in a basement. And behind her on the basement stairs, there's this woman in a bathrobe. And she's telling Tillman that like when she answered the door, that Morrow just came in and ran down the stairs and started pulling up her floor. And so she called the police because, right. you know, and so, but Morrow's just keep working. She's saying like, he's here, he's here. This all happens. We can see this happening behind her as she's pulling the floorboards. And so Scully and Mulder come down the stairs too. And then Tillman grabs her and her shirt is still stained with blood. And he's like, oh my God, I'm going to take you to the hospital. And so they leave. And then Mulder kind of like, hmm, he looks down because she's already got some of the floorboards up. So he reaches down into the hole and starts feeling around. And you hear like rattle, rattle, rattle. And he pulls up this rotting burlap sack and has like bones sticking out of it. Mm-hmm. And then we go to commercial. And it makes that fun bone sound where you can just like yeah. hear stuff rattle together. And you're like, there's yeah. bones in that bag. Yeah, like a wind chime almost kind of like <laughs> rattle, rattle bones. Yeah. It's a good Foley effect. Go Foley yeah. team. Yeah. So then we're at Memorial Hospital in Aubrey, Missouri. And Mulder and Scully go into Morrow's room. And Scully hands her a paper sack full of clothes. And she's like, I thought you might need these. And Mulder asks what happened. And Morrow says it was Coakley. He was in the room. And Scully is surprised that Coakley attacked her. Because obviously they've seen him. He's old. Mm-hmm. He's not that strong. And Morrow's like, he must have carved up my chest while I was asleep. Which... I feel like you would wake up. <laughs> you, would, you would think so. Yeah, you would think so. And Mulder asks if she's sure that it was him. And she she knows it was him. She saw his reflection. He looked exactly like his picture. 
And Mulder's like, well, you know, that picture is from like 50 years ago. So he was young in that picture. So he Mm -hmm. wouldn't look like the picture. And she's like, no, no, it was him. It has to be him. So they're like going to send officers to go pick him up. Yeah, which seems just like, okay, we're going, let's go pick up this old dude because this woman says that she sees some young guy. Right. It seems weird, but I mean, it seems weird. I can see them doing it just like cover their bases because she says she was attacked. This is the guy she's naming. They can interview him and kind of rule him out, but it does seem a little, little odd. Yeah. So they're in the interrogation room and Tillman is asking Coakley where he was last night and like, you know, and how did you get in Morrow's house? And Coakley is not having this. He's not happy. He says, it's all I can do to get up to go to the bathroom. Like, obviously I can't get all the way here and you know, that kind of stuff. And Tillman explains the victim identified you and Coakley says he's already paid for his crime and he never touched that woman. Then he's like, I'm done answering questions. And he asks for a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So then Mulder is in his motel room and he's eating sunflower seeds and he has like the photos out of like, you know, like Cheney and stuff. And so the sunflower seeds are sitting there and Scully comes in and she says she has the preliminary result from the genetic testing of the blood that was found under Roberta Johnson's fingernails. She was the woman from the pool, right? That she mm-hmm. died. Yes. And so there's genetic markers that match Coakley and she names off like which specific ones they are and that kind of stuff, whatever science. And Mulder wonders why he'd let Morrow live. He meaning Coakley and Scully points out that it wouldn't be the first time a victim of his survived. And Mulder's like, yeah, you know what? It's time that we visit Mrs. Thibodeau. And so they grab the coat. Yeah. So then we're at the Thibodeau residence in Edmond, Nebraska. Linda has a portrait of herself from three weeks before her attack. And she's like showing it to Mulder and Scully. Mm -hmm. And we see now she has like this big scar around one eye. And she says she hasn't had a photo taken since, which is really sad to me. That really bummed me out. But there's a photo of her with a man on the wall. She has like a bunch of photos like near her Mm -hmm. staircase. And Mulder sees it. And he's like, who's this guy? And so she's like, that's Martin. He was my husband. And he had passed in June of this year. So like she really misses him. But she isn't sure she would have survived her ordeal without him. And Scully asks if she can just kind of go through what happened the night Coakley attacked her. And Linda says that it happened right there on the landing of the stairs. And she remembers how the light from the window above the landing like bounced off the razor. And the razor had this ivory handle. And Coakley kept saying, someone's going to take the blame, little sister, and it isn't going to be me. And she talks about how at the trial, his lawyers tried to excuse it due to his own abuse. And as she speaks, Mulder noticed there's a photo of Linda with her husband in front of the Trilon in Paris here in New York. Yeah. And apparently Coakley is the only boy in a family that had a lot of girls. And so that may be why the little sister thing, too, because. Yeah. Yeah. So Mulder asks about children, and she asks if they had any. And Linda Thibodeau is like, no, we never had kids. And then he points out that, according to the records, she checked into the hospital nine months after her attack. And she's like, oh, yeah, I had complications from my injuries. And Mulder's like, "Uh, no, what happened to Coakley's child? And she finally relents. And she admits that she was pregnant with Coakley's baby. And Martin, her husband, used to say, like, we can't blame the child. Like, it's not his fault. And she decided that she couldn't keep it, though, because it just felt like the spawn of evil. So she gave the baby up for adoption. And the baby would be almost 50 now. And she produces the address of the agency. 
And then she starts to say, if you find him. And then she's like, no, never mind. So like change your mind about sending a message possibly. Yeah. So back at the motel, Scully tells Mulder that the bones Morrow was trying to find under the house belong to Agent Ledbetter. So the ones that Mulder pulled up, those were Agent Ledbetter. So now they've got both of the FBI agent's bones. And also, Coakley had rented that house back in 1942. And then they also found an old straight razor under the house, and they're trying to get prints from it. So Coakley has been released because they couldn't charge him anything because obviously, you know, there was no way he got there and did that kind of stuff. But now Scully thinks they have enough information to nab him, which I'm not sure why this stuff would make it easier to nab him for Morrow's attack. So it doesn't. It has it gives them evidence to nab him for the murders in 1942, at least of Ledbetter and possibly. Oh, okay, gotcha. So it gives them a reason they can arrest him. They still can't get him on Morrow's attack because they don't have. Gotcha. Oh, because just because like he rented the house. Yeah, and, he rented the house, okay. the bones were on okay, so so the okay. like, In my head, I was thinking they were still trying to get him for attacking Moro. And I was yeah. like, that has nothing to do with him attacking nope. Moro. I don't think that'll uh, help. There. Okay, gotcha, <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And Mulder thinks that just like things aren't adding up. Like Moro saw a younger man. I think this is why I was thinking they were relating to that. Because like Moro saw a younger man. And Scully's like, well, she might have been mistaken due to like mental stress, right? She may have just done that. She had seen his photo, and so she did that. And Mulder thinks the attacker was Coakley's grandson. Oh. Because apparently those kind of murdery traits skip generations. <laughs> and the, that would explain the blood under the nails because all the matching parts of the blood are actually things that would happen if it was a relative as well. So it wouldn't mm-hmm. just be like it had to be that person. Those are the kind of things that would get passed down genetically. So Scully picks up the phone because they've been waiting for a call from Danny about adoption records. So she's going to call Danny to find out what's going on. So as they're doing that, Mulder is talking about when he was a kid, he'd have nightmares and he'd wake up thinking that he was the only person left in the world. And then he'd hear this and he puts a sunflower seed in his mouth and cracks it. And Scully's like, what? And he's like, sunflower seeds my dad would be in the study eating them and he's like what if he likes sunflower seeds because his dad did and scully's like that's an environmental thing it's not genetic you weren't born at liking sunflower seeds you learned that from your father and Mulder counters that like there's cases of separated identical twins who end up in the same occupation they name their kids the same and all that kind of stuff and like it could be like genetic memory So as they're talking, Danny comes on the line. He tells Scully something and she's like, okay, thank you. And hangs up. Apparently he tracked down Thibodeau's son. He was a policeman named Raymond Morrow. It's BJ's father. So BJ is Coakley's granddaughter. So now Mulder's like, she's the killer. She has Coakley's memories and she's acting out these murders due to genetic influence. Scully is like, mm. <laughs> Actually, you know, like, so she carved her own chest, right? But Mulder says, like, she's not herself. So, like, she didn't carve those on her own chest. She carved those on a victim's chest, right? Because she's not herself. She's, like, almost like she's possessed, kind of. So, and if BJ is trying to finish what Coakley started, then Linda might be in danger. Because he might be trying to finish the crime that he was unable to complete. Yep. Yep. Good old Danny comes through again. I hope they send him fruit baskets or something because, like, he does a lot of work for them. Yeah, well, you know, he probably, like, maybe Mulder sends him, like, 
ball game tickets or something. I don't know. Maybe, or, yeah. Or porn videos. <laughs> I hope it's ball game tickets for Danny. <laughs> he likes games. I don't know. Games, games that people play in the middle he of the night. He likes sports. Yeah. <laughs> Euphemism. Anyway. So Linda's wearing gloves and she's like scrubbing out her oven and she finishes and stands up and she starts taking all the supplies like. She's a hard working old lady. She's like, yeah. Yeah. So she like takes them over to like the other part of the kitchen and a gloved hand grabs the iron from the ironing board. And we see that like as she passes. So mm-hmm. Linda doesn't see that. And Morrow attacks Linda in the kitchen with the iron. But Linda grabs a bottle of bleach and throws it in Morrow's face. And then she runs. Yeah, they're like in the laundry room, I guess, or something. So yeah. yeah, so she runs into her living room. She pulls a gun out of a drawer and she holds it up and she tells Maro to stop. And Maro speaks in this really low voice and she's like, "Somebody's got to take the blame, sister." And Linda insists that Maro isn't him. Like you can't be him. And Maro keeps coming at her with like a razor in hand. And so Linda's like still holding the gun, but she backs up Mm -hmm. and she's like, I'm not afraid to use this, but like, she's not shooting it. And she ends up on the landing to the stairs where she was first attacked. And she notices that Maro has his eyes and Maro sees the photo from the world's fair. And Linda kind of lets her gun drop down to her side. And she's like, you're my grandchild. So Marl reaches for Linda's shirt and kind of pulls it back. And we can see that like, there's still a scar on her chest that says the word sister. So Marl freaks out and opens her own shirt and we can see her own like healing scar where the word sister is carved into her chest. But then her expression darkens again and she raises the razor and Linda screams. And commercial. Yep. Yep. So that, that, that sister bond just didn't work. No. Sister, grandmother, daughter bond thing. Yeah. She doesn't just have his eyes, though. She's actually got a skin condition now. Her face is messed up. Yeah, she's all blotchy and like... Yeah. Yeah, and she also recovers creepy. from that bleach in the eyes really fast. Yes. I don't know that I would be like <laughs> on it like she was. She just like... Because she kind of... Like she gets like a total, like a huge splash of bleach in her face. And she kind of just goes like wipe and then it's fine. It's fine. So, yeah, but her well, face is messed up. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. It's creepy. Yeah. At first, I thought it was from the bleach, and I was like, oh, bleach doesn't do that. And then I was like, oh, it's because his face is also, like, his old photos, he's got, like, a rash. And then as an old guy, apparently his condition hasn't cleared up because his face is also, like, all gross and stuff like that from, like, heavy-duty, like, skin-missing shit. So, yeah. So, Mulder and Scully arrive at Linda's house a little late. But Mulder bursts in and they find Linda on the landing. So she says that Morrow had a razor and tried to kill her, but then she stopped for something. It looks like she did get cut, though, because she is bleeding a little bit. Yeah. So Mulder calls and he asks for an ambulance and he puts out an APB on Morrow and says that she should be considered armed and dangerous. And Scully thinks that Morrow is going after Tillman. The first murder occurred after Murrow learned she was pregnant. So maybe she's looking for someone to blame. And Mulder's like, no, she is going after Coakley. She's figured out that she's his granddaughter and she's going to blame him. So Mulder tries to call Coakley, but there's no answer. So he heads over there. And we're going to find out Mulder is right because he's a behavioral science dude and Scully is not. 
he has a degree in it. So Scully should just like go find some drugs to explain or a body to autopsy or something and leave the behavioral science to Mulder because he knows what he's doing. So she doesn't get to do everything. I mean, she can try. But she's wrong. So, anyway. so at police headquarters in Aubrey, Missouri, Tillman is enraged at Scully for accusing Morrow of murder. Tillman says that Morrow couldn't hurt anyone. And Linda is literally sitting right there and Scully gestures to her and is like, Morrow attacked this woman with a razor. And he like refuses to believe it, but Linda insists that it's true. And she's kind of apologetic about it even. She's like, no. Like, well, it's her granddaughter. Like, it's true. It's true. Yeah. So Coakley's at home and his TV's on and he kind of like is walking into the room and he sits back in his chair and he starts to put his little nose thing back in and then he sees the plastic has been cut and then he hears a creak. So he turns off the television. He's got like one of those super old timer remotes that has like four buttons. He turns off the TV and then he sees a shadow in the next room. So he's like, who's there? And then we cut and we see like a razor in someone's hands and then Coakley gets up and he starts heading to the room. And so I know he's a rapist and he's a serial killer and he should have died in prison, but he's watching his girl Friday with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. And when he sits down in his chair before he gets ready to put his nose piece in, he's kind of watching the movie and he has this moment of emotion, like maybe remorse or regret or just like sadness because he's like old and alone. And like, it's a small detail and it didn't need to be there, but I like it. Because I like the details. I thought it was yeah. good. I mean, you don't want to feel sympathy for this guy because he's mean, not a good guy. But it's, it's like, it's one of those things. He's still a human. So it was like. Yeah, it's almost like people who do bad things are not necessarily a monolithic evil. I'm not saying that like people who rape and murder people shouldn't be punished. But our justice system is really messed up. And we need to stop viewing people who do those things as monsters who don't ever deserve anything good. Yeah, I am. I I would be curious to see if that was something that was in the script or if that's something the actor did. Yeah. Um. Just because, like, I think it really does. Like, it's just it's just a little thing. Like, it could have not existed, but it's just like a little detail that like brings something else to the. If nothing else, it brings something to the performance. So, yeah. And then we cut and we see that Mulder pulls up to the house, and then we cut back into the house, and Coakley has gone into that room and. Moro is standing in the corner with the razor. And so she comes at him and he's like, oh, he's like obviously scared. Right. Cause you know, she's going to kill him and he's an old dude and he can't really fight back. And she's got her like deep, like Coakley voice. And like, how does it feel to be on the other side of the razor brother? And then she slashes at him a couple of times and tells him that he knows the rules. This doesn't stop until he's dead. And he like falls down into like a corner. It's like, ah! and then. Hmm. Yep. So Mulder goes around the side of the house and we see an old pickup that has been in all the flashbacks mm -hmm. and he enters the house and he comes in the back way. So he calls Coakley's name and finds him lying on the floor bleeding and Coakley's eyes slowly open and then he widens and Mulder turns around and Marl runs at him and she attacks him with the oxygen tank. Yeah, and that is Mulder a good scene. I like that scene. Yeah. That's a good and, shot. Yeah. And so she has Mulder on the floor and she sees him as Agent Cheney. So she doesn't see him as Mulder. And she's like, this time you're going to stay dead. And then Scully and Tillman come in with guns. And Tillman's like, what are you doing, BJ? And she's like, I'm not BJ. But then, like, Coakley dies. And BJ, like, something shifts. And she puts down the razor. And Tillman grabs her and pulls her aside, like, away from Mulder. And so Scully runs over and helps Mulder sit up. 
Yeah, that scene where she comes at it is because like he turns around, but then we're seeing like Mulder's point of view, and she just like runs straight at the camera with like the oxygen tank to hit him in the head. That was freaking cool. I loved yeah, that scene. Good. That was awesome. Although I do have to say, Mulder might want to think about getting a new partner because like there's a killer on top of him with a razor on his throat and actually like touches it so he gets a little bit of blood on his neck, and then Coakley dies, and so Scully goes over to see if Coakley's dead in the middle of the standoff. Like, what are you doing? Well, you have to know if he's still one, you want to know the situation. Tillman's got a gun on her. Yeah, but I if Coakley's dead, he's dead. Like, Yeah, but you want to know. Like, you want to make sure because he could- partner is right there you. and you're just like- oh, But Tillman's got a gun that. on him. What's she going to do? I don't know. I think you're just too hard on Scully. Poor I probably Scully. am, but I'm like, hey, you know, I think there's, you know, priorities. The dead guy is fine. He's, well, he's not fine. He's dead. But- No. Poor Scully. I love Scully. <laughs> Team You're Scully. Blinded by your love. I am. I am. It's unconditional love. <laughs> that never ends badly. No, never at all. <laughs> she can do no wrong. That's not true. She can do wrong. Anyway. <laughs> she does repeatedly. So she, I mean, so does everyone in the show. <laughs> Mulder's looking at porn at work, okay? Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. I, I can forgive a lot. So Scully's at her computer and she's typing up a report and in voiceover, she tells us that they're continuing genetic testing on Detective Morrow. There's some evidence that Morrow has a mutator gene that may have activated previously dormant genes in her body, but so far the results are kind of inconclusive. Yeah, those sneaky mutator genes are always activating dormant genes and causing shenanigans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, sneaky mutator genes. So then we're at Shamrock Women's Prison in the psychiatric ward, which is in high security. And we get a voiceover from Scully. And we're seeing like the scenes of the prison. We go down a hallway and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, it's voiceover. And Scully is telling us that Detective Morrow has not exhibited any further psychological changes. Extensive blood work and psychiatric evaluations have been conducted to determine if the pregnancy might have triggered these changes. No abnormalities have been detected in the fetus, however, um, and it is going to be a boy. And then we see Moro, and she's got a big belly. She's in her orange jumpsuit. I'm pretty sure she's in, like, solitary confinement. We're not sure. But she's in her second week of a suicide watch, so she probably is in solitary confinement, after a failed attempt to abort the fetus. And Tillman is petitioning to adopt the baby when it's born, and the case will be heard by the courts soon. And then it's over. All we get. Mm-hmm. I think the last thing we see is her like with her hand on her belly, right? Isn't that the yeah. last thing we see? Yeah. Yeah. So. so big sigh. Like, I get that this isn't entirely the pregnancy is evil trope, but I do kind of hate that the whole thing is like triggered by her pregnancy. And given that Coakley was released, I kind of wish, like, I, I almost kind of wish she had been the killer somehow, and that Morrow, like was having these visions maybe triggered by her pregnancy that like, or maybe triggered just by the fact that Coakley's killing again. And like this genetic memory is allowing her to like find the bodies and get on his trail. But you know, that's not the episode we got. So. Yeah. It's weird because also her genetic stop once he dies, like it's something like you got to kill the head vampire thing. Like he's dead. So now it doesn't affect her anymore. Yeah. That's kind of weird. Strange. And I had been thinking that, Oh, it activated once he got out of prison, 
but he actually got out of prison a year ago. I was thinking right. it was 94, but it's actually 93. So I'm like, well, that doesn't work either. Not that I don't know why that would make a difference, right? But at least it would be something. No, but, it yeah. like was activated by her pregnancy somehow. Which I get pregnancy yeah. is a huge ordeal and it does change your body in lots of ways. So I get it. I just don't love the pregnancy is evil trope that seems to happen in sci-fi and fantasy shows. Yeah. She uh so the actress who plays BJ Morrow, she also has a lot of similar features with Eve six, seven, eight, and mm-hmm. it was kind of distracting for me for a lot of the early parts of the episode because oh, she's okay. kind of got she's kind of got the, sh- the shape of her mouth and her jaw, and then her eyes also are very similar to the actress who played Eve, and so I was kind of getting I kept like whoa I got distracted a few times, but it it, it kind of went away once I got you know as the episode went on, but like at first I yeah. was kind of oh. So, and then also like now Tillman wants to adopt the baby where we kind of got the feeling he was wanting her to, like we talked about, like he wanted her to have an abortion and she was changing her mind. And then he was a douche and was like, it's not just your decision, but like, how's he going to explain that to his wife? Like, well, I mean, I guess like, he's going to have to come clean. He's going to have yeah, to tell her what happened. I so I just don't like the idea of Howard Hughes being an asshole. So, yeah. Well, John Locke and Lost is kind of an asshole, so it works out oh. for me. Mm-hmm. But it looks like Terry O'Brien guy. isn't an asshole because he donates money to the SPCA. So. Terry O'Quinn. Terry O'Quinn. So is it O'Quinn? Oh, it is O'Quinn. O'Quinn. Why did I say yeah. O'Brien, O'Quinn, whatever. So, but, but, <laughs> but Terry O'Quinn is not an asshole because he donates money to the SPCA. Right. So, yes. So I will say this episode was good with the foreshadowing because she did mention like several times that like she saw a man's reflection in the mirror and like you mm-hmm. can't that doesn't have to be her own reflection like she doesn't specify that but it is a good foreshadowing that like she's seeing herself as this other person so I thought yeah. that was well done good for you and this episode was written by Sarah B Charno although I guess Morgan and Wong did do a lot of editing and like stuff was added right up until filming and probably during filming. Cause that's how TV works. So sort of like mm-hmm. last episode, she actually has done a lot of work on television as Sarah Cooper. And mm-hmm. she's written episodes of house, Chicago, hope homicide life on the street. And before X files, she even wrote a couple episodes of star Trek, the next generation. So she's done a lot of television writing. Yeah, she does have one more episode, and it's actually this season. It's episode 21, mm-hmm. and it is also about a spooky, murdery, possibly possession kind mm. of story. So I wonder if it's something, because they did mention, like you talked about, like they had to do a lot of work on it. Like the story was just like huge, and so they had to cut it down and add stuff. And I'm kind of wondering almost like if stuff that's in the next episode she does, but maybe stuff that was in that as well, and they just kind of they got cut and reworked. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. but Could be. Yep. And as you mentioned at the top of the episode, when we were talking about the air date, this was the first episode of 1995. 1995 is also when Topps Comics began their series of Exiles comics in nice. January of 95. The first issue was not to be opened until Christmas. That was the name of it. Although the cover actually says do not open until Christmas. And it's, well, it's actually, it's actually Xmas, right? Because X-Files. And it takes place right after Christmas in 1994. So it's like contemporaneous. And I know you and I had talked about possibly doing some discussions of the comics at one point, And maybe we will. Who knows? But at the moment, we're not. Yeah, so, we might That's just something else to do that we don't got time for. <laughs> so We're busy yeah. people, okay? Yeah. Well, I guess we have to do ratings. Oh, man, no. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So, like, I'm just going to think through this episode. Like, I enjoyed watching it. I was actually, I did not see the twist coming that it was her. 
So kudos. Even though they foreshadowed it. They did foreshadow it really well, but like I didn't I didn't quite get it, which is good. Like I feel like good foreshadowing doesn't necessarily Yeah, it doesn't there's foreshadowing and there's telegraphing, right? Right. You don't you don't want telegraphing. You want foreshadowing because accurate foreshadowing shouldn't be like afterwards you're like, oh, it was there all the time. Right. Yeah. And so I thought they did that really well. There were some really good elements. It was creepy and I loved like I don't know. I thought it was really well done for the most part. Like you said, there were some really good scenes. No, it was really well shot. Yes. Bowman did a really good job. They talked a lot about how this was almost like a horror movie kind of thing. And this was like his first time trying to do something like that. And I think he did a really good job. It does have that kind of feel to it. Yeah. And there are some really good shots in this. Yeah, definitely. And it was surprising. And even just like we talked about like in the beginning, like the music too. The combination of that as well. Yeah. It's really good. That's the mood pretty well. Yeah. The whole thing is pretty solid. Like I think. I'm just trying to think. I think I love all little green men. I think I need to bump that up. It's like only like <laughs> the 78th time you've said that. I know. But every time I look at it, I'm like, no, I was, I should have bumped that. It's an eight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm just, I'm kind of going between a six and a seven, to be honest, because. I feel okay. like it's a solid episode and like coming off the last episode, I think that kind of helps it a little more too. Cause the last episode was so bad that this well, one is, is it like better. Is it better than the host? Is it better than sleepless? Is it better than one breath? I think so. I think so. Then I'm thinking you got to say a seven. Cause I you think gave so. those sixes. Yeah. I think yeah. I'm going to give it a seven because I do think it's really good. I think it just had a couple little things where I was like, wait, what? Like, but they were minor. Like, I mean, I don't know how the FBI got a scan of the original victim from 1942, but I'm not going <laughs> to let it ruin my fun. So, well, like I said, I think they just scanned the photos. And yeah, I used, think so. Like, she used CAD software or something to like digitally like 3D a skeleton. So yeah, that's probably it. It's Scully. She can do everything. Right? It's mag. It's magic TV science. They can do whatever yeah. they want. Yeah, so I'm going to go with the seven. Seven. Okay. Yeah, seven. All righty. So this one has caused me a lot of, I don't want to say grief, but I've almost been thinking about the fact that I've been thinking about maybe splitting my ratings, which I'm not going to do, but I thought about it between like how well the episode was done versus the story. Cause the story is kind of not great, but the episode was really well done. But I think I just need to like take that into account and adjust I kind of did that in Dwayne Barry, right? Yeah. I think Dwayne Barry was awesome, but there were some elements of it that enraged me, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I had to give it a much lower score than I would have preferred to give it just because they're part of the episode. And so you got to take everything to account. Yeah. So with that said, I was thinking six, but much like yourself, um, I haven't given anything a six. I've basically given fours and sevens, and then I've given two threes. But I think I'm going to go with a seven also. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because I do think it was, I think it was well done. There are things in there that I'm kind of like, hmm. but <laughs> I think I'm always going to be like, hmm. so, yeah. Cool. So seven. So double seven. Woo. Wow. Yeah. This is our uh, this is our first high score that is the same. Yeah, it's um, the first. Wait, what's our low score that's the same? Oh yeah, we've had some fours that are both. Yeah, yeah. But okay. our our previous highs were 
I gave a seven, you gave an eight for Dwayne Barry. This is our first like higher one that is cool. the same thing. So yeah. All right then. All right then. I want to rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. Hashtag really just a bedroom closet. Episode production, design, and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And the truth is what we make of it by the agrarians. You can find us at IWantToRewatch.com or wherever podcasts are found. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And you can always share this podcast with a friend. If they like the X-Files, we'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we rewatch Season 2 of The X-Files, Episode 13. Lucky number 13. Irresistible. And try to figure out if, if the, the truth, truth is, is still out there. Right then. And that sounds like, I think we nailed another transition right there. <gasps> Yay. I think we did. We're getting yeah. it. We're getting Too bad I ate all my cake for breakfast. Oh. So, but. I didn't get cake, but I'm going to get tacos. So I guess that's okay. <laughs>